For some of you, uh, having lived in another country for part of your life, you would be assuming that this coming Thursday is, Holy Thir is Ascension Thursday, Ascension, because uh, it's 40 days after Easter when Ascension is, and then uh, Pentecost is 50 days. But in this country, and many, many countries, all the countries were invited to do this, but our country chose to do it. We moved Ascension Thursday and made it Ascension Sunday on the seventh Sunday of the year. And the reason we did it is because um, it was a Thursday, and very few people went. Maybe one-tenth of the church actually went to Ascension Thursday. Uh, it was a holy day of obligation, but like one of the priest friends of mine used to call it a holy day of, of uh, inconvenience because people were working and they just couldn't come. Therefore, the church moved it or gave the option because it's a very important part of the Easter season. It's nestled between Easter, the resurrection of the Lord, and the sending of the Spirit. And in this, on the 40th day, we celebrate Ascension because uh, Jesus leaves again. Now, this is, this is crucial to appreciate because if we don't appreciate His leaving, it's hard to appreciate the giving of the Spirit because they're very much connected, <clears throat> and it prepares us for that in the Scriptures today. So if we look at the first reading, we hear something that had been going on in the early church, and this also was rather crucial. It came to a high point, a climactic point, uh, in the first council of the church, the Council of Jerusalem, and this is why it happened. The early Christians, the first Christians, were Jews. They were Jews who followed Jesus. And uh, they still went to the synagogue or temple on Saturdays. That was their holy day. And then on Sunday, they would go to the one another's homes and break the bread and listen to the Scriptures. So that's what Jews who became Christians did. Now, Paul was persecuting them because he said they belonged to some silly sect and, and they had to go to jail. So he loved putting families in jail until he went through a conversion experience. Then he went about preaching this good news about Jesus Christ to everyone, and he went to the Gentiles. Now, in those days, there were two types of people in the world, I suppose still, for the Jews, Jews and non-Jews, or Jews and Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, then you were a Gentile. The Gentiles did not follow the law of Moses because they weren't Jews, but it's in the spiritual DNA of Jews to follow the Mosaic Code. Moses gave it to them, 613 laws. So what happened was, when Paul began to preach to the Gentiles, and hundreds and thousands were coming into the church and being baptized because they loved Jesus the Christ. But they didn't follow the Mosaic Code because they weren't Jews. So the Jewish Christians, this tiny minority, started raising a lot of ruckus over this. They've got to follow the Mosaic Code. Quite frankly, everybody loves to tell somebody else what to do. And everybody uh, gets these superiority complexes where they say, well, you should be doing what we're doing. You're not doing it right. So that's what was going on. And the church was at this place where it could have come apart, split apart. It was very climactic. So the leaders, the apostles gathered, and they did something wonderful. They opened themselves to God in prayer. They asked for God to pour his spirit into them that they could make a wise decision. And the decision they came to was this. 
wonderful Jewish Christians that you continue to follow the Mosaic Code because you should, you're Jews. But we shouldn't burden these new Christians who love the Lord Jesus and have no familiarity, none whatsoever with the Mosaic Code, but they love the Lord Jesus and have been baptized into his name. So our decision is this. We shouldn't burden them with the Mosaic Code, all those 613 laws. Rather, ask these four things that were very special to the Jews. These four things, just do those. Try to do those. They didn't even insist. They just uh, try to avoid these things. Okay. Well, this moment in time, this Council of Jerusalem saved the church from disintegrating. And the second reading today echoes that in another way, because in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we hear something of a completion or a, a fruition of, of the old ways, the Jewish ways, where there were 12 tribes that formed Israel. But now there were 12 not tribes, but apostles. In fact, they're referred to again and again in the Scriptures as just the 12. And any Jew or any early Christian would recognize, well, there are 12 tribes of Israel, but there's 12 new, not tribes, but individuals called by Jesus himself to be the founding 12 of the, of, of the church. This is so important that after Judas uh, committed suicide, hung himself because he had betrayed the Lord, now there were the 11, and that didn't work. So they had to go find somebody that knew Jesus from the time of the resurrection all the way to the present, that they could say that this person could be welcomed in as a part of the 12, and, and then the 12 would be restored. Now, with that as a backdrop, we get this amazing gospel today. It's a little confusing, too, because it kind of dances back and forth between things. Jesus says he's going away. He says he's coming back. He says he's leaving, and then the Father would send the Spirit. The Advocate would teach them everything. Don't be afraid, but he's still going away. And uh, I think that you have to put yourself in the shoes of the apostles. Imagine their feelings on Good Friday when Jesus was crucified, especially because they didn't stand by him except for John and only in John's gospel. So they felt guilt, I'm quite sure. Felt like they had betrayed their, their friend, their, their, their teacher, the guide. And then they get this alarming news that the body's gone on Easter Sunday morning, and there is a tale or something saying that he's been raised from the dead. And then he appears to them on Easter night, and they touch him, and they feel him, and they say, it's the Lord. And so then all of these appearance stories begin to happen, which we've heard all through this Easter season. But we come to this point where he says, i got to leave again. What would you feel as an apostle, as one of those 12? What would you feel? And I think the church loves the idea of putting us in those shoes of the 12. Wants us to feel what they felt. What would we feel if the Lord Jesus, whom we had seen now, who had been killed and been raised and we've seen him and experienced him, and now he says, i got to go again. But don't be alarmed. Don't be upset. Hmm. If we feel that, then I think we can feel what he promises powerfully on the 50th day called Pentecost. When he says, the Father will send the Holy Spirit who will guide you and teach you in all things. 
Now, one of the ways that that gets expressed so beautifully is in this language of remaining, dwelling with us, dwelling within us. There's a saying in Spanish, at least that's where I learned it first, um, and I, I just want to refer to it. Um, and, and actually, it goes back much earlier. I looked it up yesterday in, the, uh, in my browser, and it, uh, Benjamin Franklin said this phrase. So I think this goes way back, probably to the beginning of time. And it goes like this. Guests, hospedades, okay? Guests, like fish, begin to smell after three days. Uh, in Spanish, I think you leave, leave a fish on the sink for three days and it begins to smell. That's the same as having a guest come in. They come in for a day, a second day, that's like the third day. Okay, time to leave. Go. And if they don't, oh my God, oh, not you. You're being baptized. They, they, they you know, they, they're welcome, but not that welcome. But then Jesus says, we're going to move in. We want to move in and stay with you forever. Forever. We will dwell in you, and we ask you to dwell in us. This is amazing language. This is intimate to say that God wants to live in this house, each of our houses. And it's even more dramatic today because this little one, uh, oh, God loves him, baptized or non-baptized, God can save whoever God wants to save. And, and I, I, I just think that's fact. God is the one who saves, not me baptizing. But what baptism does, it makes so explicit even what we've heard in these scriptures today. We get to say to him, don't you know you were baptized? And God's Spirit came into you powerfully. You were anointed in the Spirit of God. And God wants to dwell in you always. And if parents and godparents teach that, you are beloved by God. God looks at you and smiles. God loves you. God dwells in you. Now that's a child, if he hears that again and again and again and again, will grow up confident in his relationship with God. Are we that confident? Do we look in the mirror and, and see ourselves and say, oh, God, you are beautiful because God loves you so much. I used to do this all the time, and some of my friends thought it was nuts, but I used to go like this, I just love me. <laughs> and we should. If we don't love ourselves, why should anybody else? And if we don't recognize how much God loves us, really, we're saying, come on in, Lord, stay with us, stay within me? That's the word today. And maybe, if we don't quite yet believe it, maybe on the next Sunday when we celebrate the Lord leaving us, if we could really get into those shoes so that on Pentecost, when we say, now the Spirit has been rebirthed in us again, that we welcome God, that we welcome God's Spirit, that we open our lives and our home to His dwelling with us forever.